I'm Mark Peterson, and this is Before, During, and After, a podcast from FEMA. FEMA has some tremendous programs to help firefighters and in turn assist with the safety and security of our communities around the country. We do this through our support to the fire community via the U.S. Fire Administration and the specialized training that occurs at the National Fire Academy. But, and the subject of today's episode, we also provide a tremendous amount of funding through FEMA's grants programs. So on today's episode, we're gonna talk about the distinct fire grants programs that fund critically needed resources to equip and train emergency personnel, enhance efficiencies, and support community resilience. But we're also gonna dive a little deeper into the unique aspect of our fire grants programs, funding research, specifically through one grant recipient, Underwriters Laboratories, where scientists partner with the fire service to engage in research that can quickly have positive impacts in the field. All right, so later in the show, we're going to hear, you know, some of the tremendous successes that our partners at Underwriters Laboratory are doing with some of our firefighter funding. But to set the stage for what kind of financial assistance has been, you know, developed over the years and provided by FEMA through our grants programs. We're going to talk today with Pamela Williams, the Assistant Administrator for FEMA's grants programs, specifically about FEMA's fire grants programs. And so, Pam, welcome. Thanks so much for talking with me. Awesome. Thanks, Mark. I'm really excited to be here today and talk about our fire grant program because these are some of our most impactful grants that we administer through FEMA's preparedness grants. So let me first walk us through the three major grant programs that we have under our Assistance to Firefighter grant program. So the main program is the Assistance to Firefighters grant program. These were established in 2001 under the National Defense Authorization Act, and that was actually just before 9-11. But in the immediate wake of 9-11, it became very clear that there were some serious capability gaps in the fire service. So with that realization, money actually started to flow into the program in much higher amounts. And it's now a large enough program that it has been broken out into these three separate grants. So this first part really helps firefighters and other first responders build capability through obtaining critically needed equipment, protective gear, emergency vehicles, training, and other resources that are necessary to protect the public and other emergency personnel from fire and those related hazards. Another very, very exciting piece of the Assistance to Firefighters grant program is the Fire Protection and Safety Grant Program. This is what we call FPNS. So this supports projects that actually enhance the safety of the public and firefighters from fire and related hazards. But the primary goal of the program is really to reduce injury and prevent death among high-risk populations. But I wanna make sure to mention this because this is the area where we do research and development and we fund grants for research and development. So that R&D meaningful space that I hope you're gonna hear a lot about um, in the next part of this podcast. So the entire goal of these research and development grants is to reduce firefighter fatalities and non-fatal injuries that improve firefighter health, safety, and wellness. 
So another area is staffing for adequate fire and emergency response grant program. So this is known as SAFER, and this is where we actually get to provide direct funding to firefighters and volunteer firefighter interest organization to help them increase or maintain the number of frontline firefighters available in their community. So actually funding firefighter personnel. The goal of SAFER is to enhance local fire department's ability to comply with the staffing, response, and operational standards, those actual standards that are established by the National Fire Protection Association. So the fire grant is actually in its 22nd year now, and fire departments throughout the nation apply, and the award decision are actually made by their peers, so other firefighters based on the merits of their applications and the needs of their community. So peer panels made up of firefighters from across the country actually help develop the criteria for these grants, review the application, and we use their feedback for grant awards. We are relying on the experts, the firefighters, when it comes to where we should drive this funding and who should receive this funding. Yeah, and we do, and they do a great job. Um, so, all right, you rattled off a couple of uh, really great grant programs, and you know, having uh, been out here in the region for quite a while, we we work very closely with a lot of fire departments, and they are very excited about these programs. Specifically, assistance to firefighter grants (AFGs). Uh, if you're in the fire community, they know who, what these are. And then the Staffing for Adequate Fire and Emergency Response Grant Program, SAFER. I like SAFER better. It's easier to say. Um, but, oh, my goodness, so impactful throughout all of the communities uh, throughout the country. It's really a fantastic program. And then, like you said, we're going to talk a little bit more about funding that comes out through the Fire Prevention and Safety Grant Program, the FPNS. So, I mean, there isn't uh, really a week that goes by that we aren't uh, connected with uh, fire departments uh, on these programs to uh, explain and uh, provide uh, some technical assistance because they really are very important to the safety and security around our communities. So with that, it, it really comes down to um, uh, money. And so, you know, Pam, it sounds like and we know that there's a lot of important work supported with these these grants. So how much funding has FEMA issued in fire grants? Well, in just the last few years, so let's talk about from fiscal year 2015 through last year, 2021, we've actually awarded more than $5 billion across almost 80,000 awards. And that's just in the past few years. These grants are one of our most popular grants, but due to the high demand, we only fund about 22% of the applications submitted. So less than a quarter of the grants submitted will actually get funded. And so that is one of the greatest challenges of these programs. We have really tough decisions to make as to who receives a grant award because the demand is so high. And there are limited resources for a tremendous need across the country. So since 2001, the fire grants have been meeting the needs of fire departments across the country. But one of the most exciting things is these resources are going to some of our most underserved and rural communities. And while there has been no geographical formula set for the distribution of these grants, when we've sat back and evaluated the application, we've seen that 
all sorts of departments, whether they're paid, volunteer, or combination, they're all represented here. The geographic response area, the type of community served, whether it's urban, suburban, rural, all of these things are taken into consideration in the application. We are trying to build a fire department capability based on where there's a need and where that need is not currently met. So we know that a fire truck being purchased by FEMA Fire Grants goes a long way in a community where they don't have enough fire trucks. And it makes a big impact even when it's just a smaller grant. It absolutely does. And, um, you know, I wonder, obviously, we're going to talk about sort of the R&D component that you talked about, you know, maybe uh, a little bit ago. But I'm wondering if you could just kind of give me a sense of some other successes where these grant programs have really, you know, parlayed into some really effective assistance for the fire community. You don't have to look very far to find some really tremendous success stories. So I'd like to share some across the various aspects of the program. So let's take the Massachusetts Department of Fire Services. So they've actually used AFG funds to invest in a mobile extraction unit to inspect, test, and track personnel protective equipment. So that's PPE that's worn by staff and students at their three training campuses. So the mobile extraction unit's capability actually helps produce a better understanding of the specific toxins that are created in an academy environment where they use straw, pellets, and gases as the primary fuel materials. But this is actually going to have a major effect on the health of the Massachusetts Fire Service because they're able to study those kind of things. But let's take SAFER grant, where we've talked about actually being able to augment staff in a specific location. Um, so the fire department in Eagle River, Colorado, was tremendously understaffed. Through a SAFER grant, they were able to add nine additional firefighters, three additional firefighters per shift to their ranks. And it was not a moment too soon because shortly after they brought those firefighters on board, they responded to a fire at a mobile home only to find out that the nearest fire hydrant was frozen. So they desperately needed more boots on the ground to handle that threat and connect to another fire hydrant before other nearby homes could catch fire. But thanks to the additional personnel that they had, they were able to make it work and put out the fire before it spread. Of course, there are many other ways that this grant has helped that particular fire protection district. And we hear that the additional firefighters have made it possible to do even more community events, events that help target our children to learn about fire safety, because we know that the most important thing is to get information into the hands of our children so that they know what to do when fire strikes in their homes. So that's pretty important. So another great success in the area of FPNS with the research and development grants is unfortunately we know that firefighters face a much higher risk of cancer than the general population, but often they're not able to access the preventive care that they need. So through some of our research that has been funded, it's helping establish the link between firefighting and cancer. And additional funding is helping to determine the association between some specific circumstances of exposure and forever chemicals and specific types of cancer. So adding a further nuance that helps with additional screening guidance. 
So when we examine issues like inhalation of respiratory particles, dermal exposures from firefighting, and overhaul activities and fire investigation, with, which it affects a huge range of fire service occupations, whether it's career, volunteer, wildland, and fire inspectors, we really start to see how this research and development funding can be transformational for the fire service. So I'd also like to mention something that's really, really important to us. A big challenge for the fire community is building codes. And buildings are a refuge and our safe space, but sometimes if they're not built to standard, they can pose a danger to us. So the FPNS program funds projects focused specifically on building code enforcement and awareness. And these projects focus on first time or reinstatement of code adoption and code enforcement, including communities with wildfire risk. So again, these grants are helping fund making our communities safer. So the last example that I wanna give you is because I love to end with some really good old fashioned statistics that highlight the number of lives these initiatives are changing and the tremendous partnerships that they're helping forge. Initiated largely through the support of another FEMA FPNS grant, the American Red Cross launched the Home Fire Campaign in October of 2014. And this campaign had the goal to reduce fire-related deaths and injuries across the United States. And as of June of last year, the Red Cross has made over 1 million households safer, installed over 2.4 million smoke alarms, and has successfully documented over 1,356 lives saved, over 866 of those being youth. Countless others may have experienced being saved from a fire thanks to the hard work of Red Cross volunteers, partner volunteers, and the financial support provided by FEMA. These grants are truly transformational. It's really incredible stuff. And um, it's like one of those areas, I think, in uh, in government where we know that we are, you know, helping communities with our grant programs, uh, whether it be mitigation or, um, you know, our preparedness grants. But man, in fire grants, it really... Uh, you see a dramatic impact. And and thank you, uh, Pam, for, you know, kind of talking us through some of those um, programs that are out there. Awesome. It was a pleasure to be here. I am so excited that you get to hear from Steve. He is truly dedicated to the fire service, particularly through research and safety. And I'm excited that folks get to learn more about what we're able to do through these grant programs. If you've ever used a hairdryer or a string of holiday lights, you've probably seen Underwriters Laboratories UL mark on the label around an electrical cord. In addition to its work in consumer safety, UL Solutions focuses on the science of fire as well as health and safety of firefighters. Today, I'm speaking with UL Fire Safety Research Institute Vice President and Executive Director and 13-year fire service veteran, Dr. Steve Kerber. On the FEMA podcast, we often talk about the usages of grants. And a lot of times we're talking about mitigation grants. Um, sometimes we're talking about Homeland Security grants. Uh, and at, at times we talk about fire grants. And um, of all of those different conversations, one of the most unique ways that our grant funding is being utilized might be through Underwriters Laboratories Fire Safety Research Institute. And so I'm so thrilled to talk to uh, Steve Kerber, 
from the Institute. Steve, thanks for joining me. Oh, my pleasure, Mark. Thanks for having me on the podcast. All right. So I'm not sure many people have heard of the Fire Safety Research Institute. So why don't you go ahead and tell me a little bit about um, the Institute and uh, maybe how long it's been around and, and what you're doing there? Absolutely. So the, the Fire Safety Research Institute's been around for, I guess, a little over 10 years. Uh, we are a part of UL Research Institutes, and many people have heard of Underwriters Laboratories. Um, Underwriters Laboratories has been around, I think we're coming up on our 130th anniversary. So uh, you all got its start when electricity was first being introduced into the country. And uh, we've developed standards and tested to those standards for the last 130 years. So you, you might notice a little UL in a circle that you see on a lot of products in your home or, or in your workplace and things like that. Uh, we've evolved quite a bit since then. And uh, one of the ways we've evolved is that uh, we now have a nonprofit public charity uh, component called UL Research Institutes. And we do research to make the world a safer place. And FSRI serves that mission uh, really by we tackle all of the existing fire safety challenges and try and get ahead of all of the emerging fire safety challenges that are ahead of us to try and make the world safer. Now, normally I would give a plug, uh, a website plug at the very end of a conversation, but uh, for anybody who's listening that might want to take a, uh, a peek at some, some of the images of what's happening at the Institute, they can go to fsri.org and, and see some of the really great uh, visuals. But um, give me just a little bit of a, uh, if you will, an audible tour of what the facility looks like. What are, what are we thinking about here? Yes, we are very visual. Uh, we burn a lot of things. And uh, a lot of that research is done uh, with the fire service. And fire service is very visual learners. So really what we've learned through doing research with the fire service for the last 15 plus years is that you need to replicate their work environment. They need to see what they respond to in the street as part of the research, if they're really gonna buy in and change behavior and accept the results of that research. Um, so we've got a facility here in Columbia, Maryland, where we look at things at a molecular level and are able to look at combustion gases and how materials burn and break down and things like that, uh, all the way up to our facility outside of Philadelphia, where we have a small neighborhood built and we can look at how fire spreads from one structure to the next structure. Uh, we can look at every firefighting tactic you can imagine. Uh, we also look a lot at uh, fire investigation, how fire burns and spreads, and how to determine that after the fact. And uh, into computer modeling and the wildland urban interface. So we've got a, a lot of topics. And uh, if you go to the website, what you're going to see is a lot of uh, a lot of things on fire and a lot of measurements being made during those fires to understand what's going on and what might be able to be done to either prevent it or learn how to handle it the most effective and efficient way possible. You know, having friends and family in uh, various fire services, uh, one thing that really sticks out at me is uh, the ingenuity of firefighters uh, in, in solving problems that they're faced with. And, and so uh, do you... Uh, tell me about the people that work at the Institute. Do you bring in firefighters? Do you have them on, you know, on staff? How, who are the folks that are doing the work? 
Sure. All, all of the above. Um, I mean, me personally, I grew up in a firefighting family. Uh, my grandfather was a fire chief. My dad runs a fire training academy. Um, I joined the fire service when I turned 16 and uh, studied fire all through school, went to the University of Maryland in the fire protection engineering program. And one of the great things about that program is you live in a fire station while you're going to school. Um, I joke the only reason I got my master's degree and, and continued on to my PhD was because it was a requirement to be a student to live in the fire station. And I wanted to do it as long as I possibly could. Uh, so we've got a lot of fire protection engineers uh, that make up our team. Um, some of those are volunteer firefighters on the side. Uh, many of them have been doing research with the fire service for so long, they might as well consider them part of the fire service at this point. And then the other half of our team is what we call our research amplification team. Um, so we put a lot of investment into getting the results of the research out and also bringing people along during the research so they can see what goes into it. They can see the rigor behind it. Uh, they can watch the houses burn. Uh, they can learn what's going on, and then we make sure that every output of our project gets into the hands of the people that it's meant to impact. Um, it's not a report that's on a shelf. Uh, it's typically an online training program, a series of presentations, a lot of video, um, so that people can take what they learn from the research and, and apply it in their jobs. So um, I, I want to get to some of those maybe examples of how y your research has influenced real world applications. But um, I, I wonder if you could just maybe talk a little bit about where you're at with the mission of the Fire Research Institute and the goals that maybe the Institute has. I mean, working with the fire service, one of the, the great things about that is you stay on the edge of what the challenges are. So we're hearing from the street every single day. Right now, it's it's constant phone calls about things like lithium-ion batteries or fighting EV fires or I've got EVs in garages, um, all kinds of sustainability concerns, cancer concerns, and things like that. Um, so we've got, I mean, our staff has grown tremendously. Uh, we're up to a team of, I think, close to 60 people. And we've got more than 20 research projects going now at, at any given time, uh, trying to tackle all of those, those tough challenges. Uh, just came off of a, a week-long trip with the U.S. Fire Administrator and other fire safety leaders on the West Coast, uh, where we went to three cities talking about the challenges of wildland urban interface fires. Um, now we've got firefighters that are trained for structural firefighting that are finding themselves in a situation where it's not one structure on fire, it's many structures on fire, or that they're having to protect a structure that's being assaulted by fire embers and things along those lines uh, because of all of the, the climate change and things like that that we're experiencing, which is really just the, the fire service in a nutshell. I mean, they're, they're constantly evolving to adapt to the changes that get put in front of them. And uh, their workplace is just changing all the time. Yeah, obviously no shortage of, uh, of those challenges out there. Um, so let's talk about the intersection of FEMA grant dollars, um, the fire grants program, and and how you're utilizing that money. You know, what is the, what is the process that you follow for achieving those funds? And then um, specifically, what projects are you utilizing them for? Yeah, the the funds have been been tremendous at being able to solve fire service issues. 
back in, I think about 2005, when the program first started, there was not much research being done with and for the fire service. Actually, research was very foreign to the fire service at that point. So, I mean, we actually get, UL got its start in the fire grants actually by getting a phone call from some folks at FEMA and USFA saying, hey, we, we've got these issues. You've got some interesting facilities. Uh, you guys should consider applying for this new grant program that exists. And uh, really, that's been an amazing evolution ever since. Um, we're finishing up our 14th. Uh, AFG grant uh, as we speak uh, on a, a training fire exposure project right now. Uh, but if you go all the way back to the beginning, it's been topics such as structural stability of engineered lumber. So as we've started to build our homes in different ways and using lighter materials, uh, it presented new challenges. Some firefighters were falling through the floor and dying in fires. Uh, so we ran a large research project on that. And and many others since then. I mean, we can get into all of them, but I think the it it allowed UL to go into a group of stakeholders that we were kind of passively interacting with over time through standards and things like that to actually dedicate an entire team full time to solving fire service issues. Um, back in 2005, we had a team of one, and now we've got a team of 60. Uh, AFG grants used to be all of the funding that we would put towards fire service research, and now it's a tiny, tiny fraction. Um, so it's actually convinced us as a safety science company that the fire service is a really important stakeholder group, and we need to invest a lot more into their safety and effectiveness if we're going to fulfill our mission. So with regard to the grants themselves, do you sort of hear about problems that are out there and then, uh, you know, put together, you know, the grant proposal to tackle a particular problem with that grant? Or how does that work? Is that the process? That's a great question. We actually are guided by an advisory board. So our advisory board is made up of what we consider fire service experts from around the world. And we're constantly taking the pulse of what are the challenges out there? What's new? What's coming down the pipeline? Uh, the other great part is being part of uh, adjacent to a testing and certification company. Uh, we're seeing new products get submitted on a regular basis, and we're constantly having to see what what standards need to be created for because something's being sold into the marketplace or something's being installed in homes or whatever the case is. So you put those two things together. Um, and you've kind of got the, the leading and lagging indicators of what's, what are the problems out there? Where is the fire service getting hurt? Um, hopefully not being killed yet, but, uh, trying to get ahead of those things. Whereas in the past it was always, well, we've had a dozen firefighters die. Can we look closer into this? Now it's, well, we think there's potential for harm here and we don't quite understand how to respond to it. Let's look at that before it becomes a deadly problem. I'd love to talk about the engineered lumber example. Tell me a little bit about like how that came to be and then what the problem set was that you were looking at. Yeah, so it really came to be after a couple high profile incidents of literally a fire in the basement of a home. The firefighters go through the front door to attack the fire and feet inside that house, they fall through the floor and burn to death. 
Um, clearly, that's not something we want to have happen. And there was a trend that was kind of saying, well, wait a minute, we're building homes differently. So what used to be a dimensional piece of lumber, I mean, if you go in a early 1900s house, it would actually be floor joists that are two inches wide by 10 inches deep. And it was literally cut out of a tree to what we now describe as we replace mass with math. So the building industry was running out of full-size trees to cut floor joists out of. Um, so they did what they do really well and figured out how to use geometry and the materials that they have to make something that is as good, if not better. Uh, so they started creating engineered eye joists. So you now have a inch and a half or two inch thick eye, and then the web is thinner. The web is typically a piece of OSB that's only a, a half an inch thick. So you can imagine if you've got fire burning on both sides of that, it takes a little bit longer for to burn through two inches of wood than it does to burn through a half an inch of wood. So what we saw was that where firefighters might have had 20 minutes or more when they had a fully involved fire insulting that floor system before collapse would happen. Now we were seeing six minutes or less of collapse time. So that was starting to explain, wait a minute here. Um, if we've got a fire service that's counting on 20 minutes of operational time, and now all of a sudden they have six or less, with the caveat there being the fire service typically doesn't know when the fire starts. They don't know when their time zero is. So they have to read the structure as they arrive and take the cues and try and size it up and, and understand what to do. And we started getting closer to demonstrating and showing them that you almost have to treat some of these new structures like they're going to collapse. So if it is, in fact, have the potential to collapse, what does that mean to your tactics? What might you do differently? And in some cases, people might take their hose line to a different place or like we like to say, you fight the fire on the level that it's on. So instead of going into a front of a house and going down the steps to fight the basement fire, go around to the back, gain access on the level the fire's on. That way, if the floor is not stable, you at least knock the fire down and you don't have the risk of falling into it. Or if your colleagues that go into search do fall through the floor at that point, they're falling into a wet, hot mess as opposed to an inferno. So that's maybe an example where you understood a problem and it changed the tactics of the firefighter, right? Did it also change building codes uh, as a result of, uh, of that research? Absolutely did. Um, so the current international residential code uh, requires a half inch of gypsum wallboard or equivalent on engineered floor systems. Um, so that's a great example where working hand in hand with the building industry and and making sure that everyone's acknowledging that there's been this change that happened, that even though it might require a little bit different cost, uh, it's worth it in order to protect our first responders to make sure that they don't have this new challenge to deal with. So um, some places that change in the code has been amended out, but for the most part, uh, it's stuck in a, in a large portion of the country. Do you also um, look at or have you looked at sort of the tools and the equipment that firefighters uh, are using? Not, not just the environment that they might be faced with. I mean, that, that's a, the engineered um, lumber is a great example of that, but um, just the, the safety equipment that they're using. 
Absolutely. Uh, we've done a lot of research with uh, their turnout gear, um, how heat moves through their turnout gear and how it protects them. Um, we've done work with different nozzles and hose line combinations and understanding how to apply water best. Uh, we studied positive pressure fans, uh, which is a, essentially a high-powered fan that blows into a structure during a fire to kind of control where the fire goes and to get smoke out of the structure. Um, so yeah, that's been a, a big area for us as well. We want to make sure that the tools they have available to them have been evaluated in an environment in which they're going to be used. Uh, this is something that commonly gets overlooked where uh, some company will come up with some new widget that they swear will, will help and save the fire service. But at the end of the day, they might take it to a firefighter training academy or something like that and try it in their training prop, which by design can't represent the actual environment it's going to be used in. So in your training prop, you might have a concrete building that you can burn some wooden pallets in for training because we need that training to be safe so we're not killing firefighters in training. Uh, well, it's going to be different when the sofa and the bed and all the plastics and synthetics are on fire in a house. Um, it was actually, we've discovered on multiple occasions where uh, the radios or the past devices that that sense that firefighters are not moving to help find the firefighters are not designed for the environment that they're going to work in. So things that heat up because they have uh, silicone semiconductors in them, that as they heat up, that semiconductor becomes a conductor and the device no longer works, but then it cools down outside and then it works perfectly again. So that was a big learning. Hey, we need to insulate these, this equipment or make sure this equipment's going to work when it's most vitally needed. And uh, we've incorporated a lot of those components into these AFG grants. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, you just hearing you talk about all these advancements. Um, I, I'm just, I'm so interested in how you actually take that research um, all and the findings that you have and actually parlay it to the firefighters themselves so that they can be safer and, and maybe have better tactics. Uh, how, how does that work? It's probably the biggest challenge we have. It's the biggest challenge that, that anyone that works with the fire service has. Um, by its nature, the fire service is a very fragmented industry. Um, it's very local. So you've got 30,000 fire departments-ish in the United States. And we joke that they do business 30,000 different ways. So if you go and get an opinion of a couple fire departments, you got exactly that. You got a couple opinions of, of a couple fire departments. Um, what we've been able to begin to break down with our research is allowing them to understand that the physics of fire are the physics of fire. Fire dynamics are fire dynamics. It doesn't care who you are. It doesn't care where you are. Um, fire burns the same in New York City as it does in Podunk, Iowa. Um, and allowing them to understand their work environment and understand the cause and effect relationships of their tactics. Now, what might be different is how a structure is built, the type of a structure, uh, the staffing that you have to respond to those fires might be different. However, the fire does not care about those things. It's going to follow a set of rules. So we've been able to use the science and the results of the research to be able to break down some of those, well, that works over there, but it's never going to work over here because we're different. It's like, whoa, 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 let's break it apart. Let's understand what might be different. 
what is not different and make it so we can learn from each other a little bit better. Um, so that's been a, a kind of a huge breakthrough with the fire service. And really it's been consistency over time that many groups and organizations have come up to help the fire service, if you will, or they do one research project and then they go away. We've been able to consistently be there for over a decade. So we've become kind of trusted and we've also understand all of the, the outlets that are available to us. I mean, all of the magazines, all of the uh, peer-reviewed journals might be great to advance the science, but there's not a bunch of firefighters sitting around a kitchen table reading peer-reviewed science journal articles. Um, so, I mean, I mentioned earlier our research amplification team. So uh, I like, we kind of have a mantra that we do research with the fire service, not for the fire service. So every single one of those 14 AFG grant projects that we conducted were typically a, a two to three year study apiece. They are led by a fire service technical panel. So at the very start of the project, we recruit, I mean, we typically get hundreds of applicants for 20 spots uh, because the fire service wants to be a part in shaping their, their future and, and leveraging the research to learn more. Um, they become essentially part of our project team. So all of the experimental design, what we choose to burn, how we choose to burn it, the type of structures, the type of equipment, all of that stuff, we work together and figure out what's going to give us the best bang for the buck in answering whatever this challenge is. I mean, some examples, uh, solar panel systems. So we would bring together experts in the solar industry, experts in the fire service and tactics, maybe some departments that have responded to these incidents and things along those lines, as well as electrical experts in science uh, and things like that, and bring everybody together to scope the project. And what we've found is when you approach it that way, not only do you get a better thorough result, you also get a set of champions on the end of the project that are going to help you take those results and get them where they need to go. So it might not be me as a researcher out teaching the results of the study. It might be our firefighters that are out teaching the results of that study because they were intimate with the study all the way along. They feel confident answering the questions and tackling the hard questions that most people are scared of when no one wants to try and be an expert and then you look silly because you don't know the answers to the questions that are going to come as a result of your PowerPoint presentation. Um, so that's really been a focus for us is making sure that, I mean, as we speak today, uh, the fire department instructors conference is going on in Indianapolis, Indiana, and uh, large, one of the largest fire service conferences in the country. Uh, one of our young engineers, Keith Stakes, um, who's also a volunteer battalion chief in Montgomery County, Maryland, he's being presented with the international instructor of the year award. So there's thousands of fire service instructors out there. They're giving the award to an engineer uh, because of the ability to translate the science to the street is, is really where the impact happens. Uh, so really proud of him and, and excited. And that's kind of a tangible example that uh, we've almost become a de facto research arm of the fire service because of this AFG grant program. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like it. I mean, honestly, I, I feel like I, I could have questions for days. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the work that you're doing is so interesting and incredible. Um, 
maybe before we conclude, uh, give us a glimpse on what the Institute's working on now, where, maybe where you see it going in the years to come and how the AFG grants can, uh, can play a role in that. Yeah. I mean, the, the challenges that we're tackling right now, some of them revolve around firefighter cancer. Um, so the, the health issues that the firefighters were faced with today is very different than they were in the past. Uh, we're seeing cancer rates in the fire service that are, are astronomical and, and well above what they should be. Um, so a lot of the questions start coming out of that. What do we do about it? And uh, there's a number of things that they can do as they go about their business, whether it's uh, how they clean themselves, how they clean their equipment, uh, the tactics that they use on the fire ground could change the exposure that they have. Um, of course, their life safety mission does not change. They are still going to do what they need to do to save lives. But there's really some scientific evidence-based things that they can do uh, after a fire, after an exposure, to make sure that hopefully they live longer into their retirement like they deserve. Um, that's a big topic. Um, there's still many fire dynamics topics of how certain tactics impact certain fires and certain types of structures, things like we start building buildings differently. So you're going to have like tall wood buildings. So you got a 20 story wooden high rise. What's different from a hazard perspective and what's different from a firefighting perspective. Certainly sustainability is playing a big role. So we're starting to see energy storage systems wind up in, in many different places and the firefighting tactics with those, there's a lot of hazards associated with those. Uh, the incident in Surprise, Arizona that happened a few years ago uh, almost killed a crew of four um, that were investigating that incident, and they weren't trained or didn't know what the hazards were at the time. Uh, we're starting to learn better now. EV firefighting, uh, micro-mobility fires. I mean, a, a day does not go by where you don't have an e-bike or an e-scooter on fire in a structure in a city somewhere. I mean, New York leading the way in that with five fire deaths so far this year and, and exponentially increasing. But I mean, it, these all come down to how do we make the fire service so they don't have to gain the experience that they need in the street in real time with the potential to be hurt or killed. We need to be figuring these things out in the research environment so that we can get ahead of them, really understand the problem and disseminate that information in a way that that gets ahead of the issue. Um, so there's there's countless issues that we're we're being faced with. I mean, one of the cool things about fire is that it's very cross-disciplinary. Uh, every new technological advancement brings a new fire problem. Um, one of our guys just was finishing up an article on data centers. Uh, here on the East Coast, particularly in the Virginia area, most of the internet is run through data centers. Uh, so now you got the fire service responding to uh, multi-million square foot data center buildings with lithium ion batteries in every rack. And you've got as many racks as your eye can see. Um, we're seeing huge warehouses everywhere because we need two-day delivery on everything across the world. So now you're having uh, 5 million square foot warehouses stood up in an area next to a highway that's protected by a small volunteer fire department um, with automatic retrieval robot systems inside of it. I mean, it's like, how do you deal with that? What are the challenges with that? And, and certainly the lithium ion batteries make it so uh, what used to be 
oh, it has to, the fire came from an electrical source on the wall. No, now it could be a lithium ion battery powered razor or toothbrush in the middle of a plastic stacking warehouse system that lights the place on fire. And it brings new fire protection hazards. It brings new firefighter hazards. Um, the list goes on and on and on. And then throw the wildland urban interface on top of that, where it is incredibly complex. And whether uh, you could have firebrands and embers that are five miles from where the fire is in the trees going into a community that's thousands of homes built four feet apart, made of plastic that are going to catch fire and the fire department's gonna show up with a hundred houses on fire and not the resources on how to deal with that. So how do we how do we educate them and prepare them in such a way that they can do the best good for the community and educate the community that they've got a huge role in fire safety as well. That's another big challenge we have ahead of us. Um, but lots of exciting topics. Uh, that is for sure. And um, I, you have a big task in front of you. And I, I really appreciate you sitting down and, and talking a little bit about um, sort of the, you know, even the incremental ways that FEMA's programs have helped uh, you advance that really important work. So thank you. Yeah, I think the the AFG program since its inception in 2005 has created a paradigm shift in how research gets leveraged to, to learn more about the challenge of fire and, and ultimately firefighter safety. It's really created kind of a, a golden age of research uh, that wouldn't have existed otherwise. Thanks for listening to this episode of Before, During, and After, a podcast from FEMA. If you'd like to learn more about this episode or other topics, or have ideas for future episodes, visit us at fema.gov slash podcast. Thank you.